Just wanted to offer a note at the top, same as yesterday. I am getting over the flu and apologize for the sound of my voice. This is the second part of a two-part interview. We released the first part yesterday. Please be sure to listen to that part first before continuing with this second half. This interview series briefly discusses suicide, murder, death investigation, and neonaticide. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. Last time, we introduced you to two volunteer investigative genetic genealogists for the DNA Doe Project. The DNA Doe Project, or DDP, is a nonprofit that works to identify does, unidentified decedents, through the use of investigative genetic genealogy, the combination of ancestry research and DNA testing. We have covered SNP DNA testing on previous episodes of The Fall Line. This DNA testing differs from earlier STR DNA testing, which is what we think of as being on file in cases. Think about when you watch older episodes of Forensic Files and they say the DNA's on file. They mean STR. STR DNA cannot be used in genetic genealogy. So an agency can't take an old STR profile and use it for familial DNA purposes a new extraction would need to be taken and a profile developed. Most of you are actually probably very familiar with SNP DNA profiles. If you've taken an Ancestry or 23andMe test, you have one on file waiting to be downloaded as a zip file. It's exactly the kind of information that groups like the DNA Doe Project hope that you'll upload to GEDmatch. There's been a standing issue that we'll begin today's interview discussing. It has, so far, been easier to solve the cases of individuals of Western European descent than any other group. Private DNA databases skew to those of Western European ancestry, and so does GEDmatch. But when you look at the classic forensic databases maintained by law enforcement, like CODIS, things seem very different. In 2020, Aaron Murphy and June H. Tong published an article in the California Law Review entitled The Racial Composition of Forensic DNA Databases. They completed a study on the racial makeup of forensic databases and explained their process as follows. Quote, First, we obtained data from states in response to our request under the Freedom of Information Laws. Second, we devised an original estimate based on public information about each state's DNA collection policies and the demographic data that matches those policies. In other words, we reverse-engineered the National DNA Database. Both approaches revealed dramatic disparities in the racial composition of DNA databases, including that DNA profiles from Black persons are collected at two to three times the rate of white persons. Other populations, especially indigenous Americans, are also overrepresented in CODIS, the forensic database. This is a really interesting article, and it digs into many statistics that are often used and tossed around but not regularly cited, and we'll link it in our show notes so you can read it in its entirety if you wish. But it points to some of the issues that arise in investigative genetic genealogy, not the least of which is that 
more white people are in the voluntary databases and more people of color are in the compulsory databases. Disparity in genetics doesn't stop with forensics. As Stat Health reported in 2020, quote, geneticists have been grappling for years, some more urgently than others, with the underrepresentation of Black individuals and other people of color in genetic studies, databases, and the reference genome. While there has been some halting progress, these problems have resulted in tests that only work for people of European ancestry and have undermined hopes that everyone might benefit from personalized medicine, end quote. Addressing database inequity in investigative genetic genealogy was one of the topics I discussed with Karen and Megan of the DNA Doe Project. If you'd like to hear more about specific issues in solving cases in Mexican, Central American, and South American unidentified decedents, please be sure to listen to our February 2022 episode on the murders of three unidentified decedents known only by their aliases, Sebastian Pascal, Rodolfo, and Pablo Hernandez Cruz. So something we've talked about before on the show is that people of European ancestry are generally overrepresented in DNA databases. I know that's something that can be an issue in investigative genetic genealogy. How is DNA Doe Project working to help address some of those gaps in the databases that you're able to access? This is Karen. So one of the things that we wanted to do in our work at DDP is try to ensure that everyone has an opportunity to have their name back. So all of us that serve as team leaders or volunteer genetic genealogists at DDP have noted that that's not the case right now. Our cases of John and Jane Doe's that are from minority populations are much less likely to be identified using investigative genetic genealogy as compared to their Caucasian European American counterparts. And that actually doesn't just affect minorities of color. We also have cases of Eastern European John and Jane Doe's who also have very low matches in the DNA databases. So one thing that we began earlier this year was a featured case matching opportunity every month at DDP. This started in May of 2022 when we attended CrimeCon, which is a very large true crime convention. And we offered an opportunity at CrimeCon for people to submit their GEDmatch kit numbers to us and find out whether they're a match to any of our 12 John and Jane Doe's that we were featuring at CrimeCon. This was a really, really popular event for us. And there were many people who visited our booth at CrimeCon and many people who uploaded to GEDmatch just to find out if they were matches to these John and Jane Doe's. So when we saw the impact of just that initial case matching event, we decided to take it to the next level and offer something every month through an online format. And we decided to also leverage this to impact our cases of people from minority populations. So I have some statistics to share about how that has affected our cases and how it's affected the database. So in that first weekend at CrimeCon, when we were asking people to upload to GEDmatch, we impacted the database by five to 10%. So they were having five to 10% greater uploads than they do normally just from CrimeCon. And that could not be attributed to any other events. So we were really proud that we had such an impact that weekend. Additionally, we have people now that upload every month in response to our featured cases. 
One thing that's important to mention here is that DNA Doe projects soon realized they could match up cases with important events happening in the world and use that tie-in on social media. For instance, June is Pride Month. So they chose a theme case to match that, a case that I mentioned last episode. Julie Doe, a trans woman who was found on the side of a Florida highway in 1988 and who is a likely homicide victim. Fallen listeners will be very familiar with Julie's case. We covered her back in 2019 and recently re-released her episode with updated comments from DNA Doe Project and Lee and Dr. Anthony Redgrave of the Trans Doe Task Force. Karen told us about how Julie's case kicked off their monthly push for uploads. In June, we featured Julie Doe. That month, we got 76 submissions, 14 were matches to Julie, and 7.6% were newly uploaded to GenMatch. In July, we featured Kenora Millie Jane Doe. She is of Scandinavian heritage, and we received 164 submissions, 14% of which were newly uploaded to GenMatch. Nine of the people who submitted were matches to Jane Doe. In August, we featured Bowmanville Jane Doe, who Megan was just talking about. She's of Caribbean heritage. We received 100 submissions. Three of them were matches to Jane Doe. And then at this point, I started separating them into two groups. So people that were new matches since CrimeCon and then new matches for the month. So in August, 11% of the people who uploaded were new since CrimeCon and 2% were new in August 2022. And then for September and October, we've just completed this case matching event. And we did a big push for Latin American Heritage Month since, for one thing, Latin Americans are overrepresented in terms of unidentified remains in the United States. And also Latin Americans are very, very poorly represented in GenMatch and Family Tree DNA. And so those cases really, really need help from the public and really need help in terms of more people getting into the database. So for Latin American Heritage Month, we featured 12 different DOE cases, all of them with Hispanic or Latin American ancestry, and we received 116 submissions. 22% were new uploading to GenMatch since CrimeCon, and 12% uploaded in September or October, apparently for the express purpose of submitting for Hispanic Heritage Month. So that was a that was a really big accomplishment, I think, because we got so many new people to upload to GenMatch. So on a related topic, I would love to hear from y'all about the situation that's happening now and has been happening in Pima County, Arizona. Because I believe it addresses several of the topics we've been discussing in this conversation. Challenging cases, the need for funding, how DNA Doe Project is working to help identify individuals in an underserved population in terms of investigative genetic genealogy. This is Karen. So Pima County is an area that's extremely close to my heart. I'm from Arizona originally. And Pima County is extremely unique in a number of ways. One is that it's very close to the U.S. and Mexico border. So unfortunately, a lot of migrants trying to cross the border lose their lives in that region. And as a result, Pima County has no limit to the amount of unidentified remains found there. There are new unidentified remains cases nearly every day. 
And many of them will remain unidentified because of various factors impacting that population. Additionally, Pima County has a limited amount of funding. You can imagine how many staff they must have to have in the Pima County Medical Examiner's Office just to maintain records on all of the unidentified remains cases there. So we've taken on a number of cases from Pima County, but when we do take a case from them, we provide the fundraising. So we took on three cases from them initially, which of which two are solved. Those were Tucson parking lot, John Doe, Valencia Road, John Doe, and Pima County, Jane Doe, 2010. So of those three cases, two of them were solved within a few weeks, and those two were Caucasian. The one that is left unsolved is a Latin American girl, and she was one of our featured cases for Hispanic Heritage Month. So her case is is sort of, I I don't want to say left behind because there are still people working on it, but unless she has better DNA matches at some point, that case will remain unsolved. So there's, there's a few different issues affecting the population of Pima County does. One is the lack of funding for their cases, which DNA Doe Project is doing our best to help with. We're currently raising funds for three more Pima County cases on our DNA Doe Project website, and people can give to those if they feel motivated to do so. Additionally, the population that is affected is primarily Latin American, John and Jane Doe's. And so Those come with a number of difficulties, which we've discussed, distance of DNA matches, low representation in the databases, socioeconomic factors that impact whether their families are able to come forward to report them missing. All of those factors impact their likelihood of being identified. There are a lot of factors that affect how difficult or easy it is to work a case. We've talked about some of them before. Recent immigration cases and ethnic minority cases are typically more difficult to work because they are not represented in the DNA tester population on GEDmatch and family tree DNA that we have to work with. When recent immigration is involved, that also throws another wrench into things because there could be a language barrier. There could be issues with obtaining those records. We can't afford to send volunteers to Norway to look up records that are only available in a church. As far as getting down to identifying a doe, if they're part of a minority population or they've been estranged for whatever reason, which we see happen often also with our LGBTQ cases, where the person is much more likely to be estranged from family, They may not be listed in obituaries or non-official records. It may be a lot more difficult to determine if someone is alive or deceased or if they ever existed. Some states in the U.S. just don't have very good public records. So on a related topic, sort of addressing social issues, I know that DDP has to fundraise for cases. You are a nonprofit. I'd love to talk about the cases that are hardest to fundraise for and why, and what have been some of your solutions to the problems of fundraising for those cases. This is Karen. Fundraising is a difficult situation at DNA Doe Project. And it's hard to say all of the different factors that impact when people are willing to give for a particular case. I'll just point out a few of the cases that I've recently noticed that we raised funds for. For example, Pima County Jane Doe 2010 
and Tempe Girl both brought in quite a lot of money, not enough to fully fund their cases, but they both had reconstructions done by Carl Koppelman, who is a brilliant reconstruction artist. They both were young and beautiful. They were both from minority populations. I'm starting to think that that is less of a factor than the general aesthetics of the person whose reconstruction is being done. And then I also had a case, uh, downtown Phoenix, John Doe, 2004, his case is now solved. He was identified as Frank Beck. And that was just a couple of days ago that that came out in the news. The man was homeless prior to his death. And the way that he died was that he fell from a tall building. So his reconstruction was just not as, I guess, attractive as some of the other reconstructions that I've seen for other cases. And only $26 was raised when we raised funds for his case. I think when people see one of our, our cases pop up on Facebook or Instagram that, that need donations, some people are motivated to click by whatever it is that connects them to that reconstruction or that photo. And then the other thing is that we have these a new way of, of funding cases, our, our pre-fund cases on Tiltify. Those are cases that we're trying to raise the funds before we do all the lab work for them. And I thought that it would be a big factor seeing the thermometer on those Tiltify cases and people can see exactly how much money still needs to be raised for them. And I thought that would be a really big motivating factor in getting people to give, but they are taking a while to raise all the funds for those as well. So there are so many factors that go into it and it's hard to put my finger on what it is that inspires people to give for particular cases. But I do think that the attractiveness of the reconstruction is part of it. So Karen, I know you and I have talked in the past before about the regional funding solution. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that, because to me, the idea of looking at a resource rich area and how to sort of redistribute funds there is such a good idea to me. Sure. So one thing that we've been looking into doing at DNA Doe Project is fundraising based on the region that a John or Jane Doe was found in. We had the idea initially to set up regional fundraisers, for example, Southwest cases, where people that are in the American Southwest can donate to one fund that would be distributed to cases in the Southwest. So in the Southwest, you might have states with more areas of wealth and less areas of wealth, but perhaps the people that are giving more in the wealthy areas would sort of make up for the, the less wealthy areas where people are able to give less. However, we have some difficulties sort of distributing funds in that way, because when you, when you sort of make a promise as to where funds will go based on the, the way the fundraiser is set up, and then you can't prove that you distributed the the funding in that way, you know, that can get you in trouble with your donors. So we're still working on the best way to set things up like that. So one case that we fundraised for a while back was Mercer Island, John Doe. And this was a likely unhoused individual, but the area that he was found in, which is Mercer Island in the Pacific Northwest, is a very wealthy area. So fundraising for him was very successful, most likely because it reached the people from that area. Unfortunately, not every John or Jane Doe is found in an area that's very wealthy. So doing regional fundraising 
where you can sort of distribute the wealth of the people that live in a particular area, it can benefit cases where the John or Jane Doe was not found in a wealthy area. So to change gears a little bit, and you guys have already talked a bit about collaboration, but I'd love to hear a little more about that because I know just from my conversations with other people who've worked in, do work now at DNA Doe Project and from speaking with Margaret Press, one of the founders of DNA Doe Project, that collaborative work is the key to success with DDP. Can you talk more about how collaboration helps solve cold cases? This is Karen. So my first comment about this is that our primary collaboration is with our law enforcement partners. One case in particular that I would like to point out that collaboration was absolutely necessary to solve the case is that of Patricia Skipple, who was known as Blue Pacheco Jane Doe. She was a victim of the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. And she is of Norwegian descent. So the difficulties with that population, you have the surname system, which is very different from the way that we use surnames in the United States. You also have a lower representation in gen match and family tree DNA than some other populations. And you have the difficulty of international records. So what we did with that case was a lot of voluntary target uploading. So we would have our law enforcement partner contact people who we thought might be related to Jane Doe. And then our law enforcement partner would ask them to upload to GenMatch. And then that allowed us to rule in and rule out certain lines of the family tree. And eventually we got to a nephew. So her nephew ended up uploading to GenMatch. And that is what solved her case. So without the partnership of our law enforcement agent in that case, it would be unsolved today. And it took two years of doing that process for her case to get solved. But it was the best collaboration that I've seen thus far. On the topic of IgG, if you could pick one thing to improve, and I won't hold you to one, but try try to shoot for one, whether it's testing, databases, funding for certain aspects, what do you think would be most vital in supporting DDP's ability to resolve as many cases as possible? This is Karen. I'm going to have to go with funding because funding is the primary barrier that we see come up again and again for agencies that want to pursue IgG for cold cases, whether it's a John or Jane Doe case, a suspect case, funding is the main barrier. This is Megan. And for me, I think increasing public trust is incredibly important for me. There is a lot of discourse right now about investigative genetic genealogy and ethics and DNA Doe Project as a whole, every single volunteer, we want to see increased ethics and accountability in this process just as much as the public does, just as much as anybody does. At the same time, we need people to trust us and to trust our process and to trust uh, IgG's process. Otherwise, we won't be able to continue to solve these cases that the victim has been robbed and neglected in so many different ways across time. IgG is usually one of the last ditch efforts to identify someone who all other efforts have failed. And we have seen cases where we've started the IgG process and then they're identified through other means. And that's fantastic. But a lot of our cases, they would still be cold today if we didn't go through this process. 
And we want to start to heal and right those wrongs that historically we have seen in the past with, with things like police distrust and possibly police incompetence. We, we see it a lot with our cases where, again, maybe a missing person report wasn't taken way back when because the police thought, oh, they're just, you know, they're not worth our time or they wouldn't investigate. They treated them as a runaway. Or we see those that just weren't investigated because the police may have thought the same thing about them, that no one was going to miss them or, and I, I hate to rag solely on, on the police about this, right? But essentially, you know, it's, it is their job. Another thing that I see a lot is public distrust of the way that these databases work. Even um, a lot of people are uncomfortable with giving their DNA sample for law enforcement. For example, I'm opted in on GenMatch for law enforcement cases, which don't include those nowadays. Those we can compare to the entire database. But if someone is working to identify a suspect in a law enforcement case, they still can only see and use matches that are opted in on GenMatch. I'm opted in. My husband is not. And that's perfectly fine. On the topic of law enforcement and also medical examiners, have you seen an increased understanding in terms of law enforcement and their awareness of what investigative genetic genealogy can and can't do and how they interface with investigative genetic genealogists and their understanding of what DNA Doe Project can bring to a case? This is Karen. I see a really wide spectrum of understanding, ranging from we have some law enforcement agents that we work with who have such a grasp of IgG that they could participate on their own cases. They could potentially be onboarded to the IgG team working on their case and participate in it meaningfully. And then I've also worked with agencies where their understanding of IgG is very limited and they don't have the time or the bandwidth to really grasp that understanding. One thing that I hope will at least get out in the public more is the difference between traditional DNA testing and the type of DNA testing that we use for IgG. Just today on um, one of the comments on DDP's TikTok, somebody asked in the comments, why couldn't this have been done in 2004 when this John Doe was found? While the type of DNA testing that was done in 2004 is not the same as the IgG DNA testing that we do now. I would love to know, and I know that you, of course, cannot forecast the future yet, but where you hope and imagine that DNA Do Project will be in five years. And I'd also love to hear from you how our listeners can best support DDP. This is Karen. Five years from now, I hope we'll have seen an impact to the databases that benefits our long haul cases, our underrepresented populations, our minority populations. And I hope that we'll be seeing more of those cases get closed. DDP has a number of collaborations that we're working on to impact those factors. The number one way that I hope that people can help today. I hope that I can motivate all of you to get online right now, go to dnadoeproject.org, click on the cases link, and then go to our cases that require donations. Find those ones that are on Tiltify because those are the ones that need funds to, to make it through the lab process. Make a donation to impact their cases. Without your donations, those can't be solved. 
And that's the simplest way that you can have the biggest impact today. This is Megan. As interest and awareness in this technology grows, I really hope that it will become more accessible and more affordable for more agencies to be able to put it to use because it is a fantastic tool. I also know that within five years, we will have helped develop a standard of ethics that we hope that all IgG organizations will hold themselves to. We would love to see increased public trust in not just our organization, but this technology across the board. We would love to see more people be willing not just to upload, but to talk about our mission in a positive way. This is Karen. I would say that the number one thing to know is that we do need their help to solve these cases and that there's a number of ways that they can help. So if a person doesn't want to share their DNA on GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA, that's okay. They don't have to. There are other ways they can help. They can share the stories of our John and Jane Doe's on social media. They can make donations to the cases that require them. Agencies are never going to have deep pockets to solve these cold cases. So we really need the public's help in raising funds for them. And so that's one of the single most impactful things they can do. The other thing is if they do want to share their DNA to help solve cases, we have videos on our YouTube channel, which describe how to take your DNA from Ancestry DNA or 23andMe and upload to GEDmatch, which is the primary DNA database that we use. This is Megan. I will also add on to that. If you are comfortable uploading your DNA to GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA, it is also helpful if you can also upload a GEDcom of your Family Tree with that. What Megan just mentioned there, GEDcom, is a file of your Family Tree. Like your DNA, it can be downloaded from other websites and then uploaded to GEDmatch, where you can share it with researchers and also unlock more tools for your personal use. Another thing that people can do, especially if they do have more of an archival interest, they can go to their local libraries and local archives, and sometimes even their local police departments and ask if there's any volunteer opportunities to help digitize and organize old files and and get those files available online or at least organized where they can be found. One other thing that DNA Doe Project has implemented recently is that we have a Tiltify account for fundraising. So even if you don't have the funds to give, if you are a Twitch streamer, a YouTuber, anywhere that integrates with Tiltify, you can raise money for DNA Doe Project by holding a live stream that benefits us. And that's really, really a helpful, impactful way to get people to engage with our mission, to raise money for us, and to impact Doe cases. We're also on Amazon Smile. Thanks again to Karen and Megan for joining us today. We'd like to ask our listeners to join us in donating to one specific DNA Doe Project case. As Karen told us, cases without forensic art are much less likely to receive funding, and the Pima, Arizona case we're about to tell you about has only reached around 10% of its funding goal. We asked DNA Doe Project which case they'd like our help with And they chose this particular case because it's received the least funding to date. The case description per DNA Doe project is as follows. They're using the case designation Florence Junction Clandestine Grave, Jane Doe, 1988. Quote, on June 28, 1988, 
The decomposing remains of a white woman were found partially buried in the desert in Pima County, Arizona. The area is located approximately a quarter mile west of US-79 and south of Florence Junction. The woman is believed to have died within the previous year and was buried in a clandestine grave. Authorities estimate that this Jane Doe was over 50 and about 5'3", with medium-length gray hair with traces of blonde. A pink denture with porcelain teeth was found with her remains. She had suffered from osteoporosis, compression fractures, and a curved spine that would have caused her to have a hunchback posture. Her clothing was described as a floral dress or housecoat with snaps up the front. She was also wearing a white bra and white size 8 underpants. Please, join us in donating to this case. You can find a link in our profile. And if this description sounds at all familiar to you, please reach out to the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner at 520-724-8600. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us over on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to pay for the Millbrook Twins billboard and to fund therapy for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our patrons helps us to continue that work, and we're so grateful. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. We also have occasional video live streams and vlogs, which all patrons can enjoy starting at just a dollar. If you prefer Apple Premium, we've begun that feed as well. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Will Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd, Liz Lipka, and Sarah Turney. As of November 2022, our monthly donation is going to Season of Justice, to support their testing and family grant initiatives. 